0: Welcome to Really Old Movies. I'm your host, Harrison Scullen, And today I have a very special guest, Matt Patterson. And we're going to talk about his uh, current podcast, Archive Guys, and then also his work at Warner Archive Collection. Yay! Yay. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. And so...
1: We've had many discussions about movies and things. Uh,
0: When did we meet? Let's see. We met at WonderCon... this year was that this year that was i've only seen
1: you in person for less than so you're my newest friend
0: (laughs) and then we saw each other for a little bit at san diego comic-con at my dad's uh, booth
1: that's right that's right it was your dad's booth yep you're reminding me now and then we missed each other at cinecon Mm -hmm. because i was supposed to go and the archive guys we did a podcast about it and i was like i'm gonna be there but uh a work work thing came up and i missed it but you got to go yeah and originally we were like yeah i'm gonna come on your episode and we're gonna talk about our experiences at cinecon but instead you're gonna tell me what i missed
0: yeah for sure (laughs) (laughs) well and i only went one day so I, i only have about seven of the 50 or whatever movies they talked about but that's fair, though. That's right. that's one day more than me. And two,
1: as you um, have you been to Cinecon before?
0: hmm. No, this was my first time. In fact, the only other thing I've been to like that was the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival. Have you talked to, did you get to talk about that on your uh, podcast? A little bit. Yeah, I actually reviewed some of the movies um, that I saw there for my podcast.
1: And who recommended that you go to that (laughs) festival?
0: I don't know. I think his name is Matt, maybe.
1: Oh, (laughs) I love that festival so much because it's uh, a noir festival. It's out in Palm Springs. It's one theater Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: they have uh, Alan Rohde mostly uh, programs uh, the whole event. And so You know, if you get, especially if you get a pass or you could just go to one or two or three screenings or whatever, but if you get a pass, it's just kind of like one movie after the other, you know, you can choose how much or how little you want to participate. Right. But it's really mellow and I enjoy going to Palm Springs in May when it's only like 100 degrees. Yeah. (laughs) It's hot. Nice and cool, right? It's off season. But uh, I I actually uh, found like uh, I think it's like America's best value in or some somewhere there's a hotel that's actually walking distance, and so I pretend it's like San Diego Comic Con except mm. uh, nobody's there. Right. And, exactly. <laughs> and I, I think the last few years, well, I haven't gone. I didn't get to go this year. and This was a post-pandemic year but uh, in the years before there was also a farmer's market I think on the Saturday
0: yeah they had it when I went there
1: I love that so it's like I would come outside and then go to the farmer's market and get lunch and then um, and then as somebody from LA uh, when I go into downtown Palm Springs uh, it is filled with women uh, who are about to get married (laughs) (laughs) and they're having their like, hen party as they would call it in England, which was the Mm. first time I saw it. And it would just be a bunch of uh, women getting drunk. Not men, it's not a bachelor party. It's a bachelorette party. I don't know exactly why. Who knows? But uh, I've gone with other people to that. And when you see five similarly dressed women, in like may on a saturday night uh you have a about a estimated about a, like a 70 percent chance that someone one of the members is getting married and we uh i've proven that by walking up to people and saying which one of you is getting married and it, it usually <laughs> works that's what i think of palm springs so it's noir yeah. and like the beginning of a noir movie because then maybe I would say that and maybe I could be the villain or some woman would lie to me like she's getting married and then I'd, I'd have to kill her husband
0: exactly uh, right. and
1: then I wake up in the desert you know and uh frame for murder
0: exactly kind of like in detour right where you're just stranded in the...
1: <laughs> yeah you see, you're getting it so so that's happened to you
0: yeah <laughs> no no that hasn't happened to me
1: So that didn't happen to you there. And Comic-Con, you were there and I saw you there. Your dad has a booth there, right?
0: Yes. He sells his own uh, art he does, kind of like fan art, as well Mm -hmm. as his own books he's created.
1: That's cool. I really enjoyed going to Comic-Con as a civilian this year. I had been to all of the previous Comic-Cons, even the virtual one in 2020, Uh, that's
0: right i remember that
1: yeah for work uh and i probably just at comic-con i've produced and or been on uh, like 20 panels 20 to 30 panels uh but this was the first time i wasn't on any panel i didn't have any work and i had fun it's like a fun event
0: yeah, it's pretty calm too when you don't have to do anything like that, right?
1: <laughs> no, I was just like, I mean, I've had like time off, you know, like I, I've had, you know, like like I've gone where I just have like two events or something and it's, you know, like a five day thing, you know, thing. and um, mm-hmm. But I, I kept thinking that I wasn't doing something <laughs> because right, of right. my <laughs> previous experience. where I was like, I was all nervous a lot. And then I'm like, no man, I'm just here. Uh, and it was just fun. Uh, and I just like like randomly walked into things. And, and even if uh, you are not a comics fan or a sci-fi, like a genre, even if you're just like a movie fan, just regular or like books, just like any, pop culture thing you're gonna find it there because it's such a huge event
0: yeah well and speaking of movies you know when I was there I went to this booth that had tons of criterions and even Warner Archive discs for like two bucks or whatever so I just rated them man. <laughs> not all of those are legal right <laughs> there
1: we used to look at um it, it's good to see hmm. Uh, the good thing about piracy is that you can see there's a demand for your product, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> when people are like, "Oh, nobody wants discs anymore," and you see these booths with uh, tons of the things you sell for cheaper and illegally, mm-hmm. it it that's bad, uh. But at least uh, people it shows people are interested. Also, uh, one of the guys who uh, he ran the actual Uh, archive he was one of the archivists Uh, he has a table there that sells movie posters that's Mm. incredible and although you can't see my real uh (laughs) background here this is i mean this is really one of my shelves but as you can see um like actually that kind of looks real uh but he would sell all these great like weird format like are you kind of like the one that you have in the back like uh wizard of oz yeah but longer because they were for like door frames and stuff those used to be very inexpensive and he'd sell them for five dollars each and i'd find like some of the most obscure films uh and i would load up on those and then take them back to the office at warner brothers especially for the ones that we sold and i'd put people be like what what are these posters where did they come? I'm like, we sell this product.
2: Yep. <laughs>
1: but but yeah, that's just uh part of the fun of that. And then uh so yeah, we went to that. We we saw each other at WonderCon, Comic-Con, and then you went to Palm Springs, I didn't, and then you went to just last weekend uh, Cinecon, which I think this is was there 58th? I
0: want to say it's a 58. 56th? Yeah
1: which is incredible, right? That That's longer than Comic-Con, like that's one of the earlier kind of fan conventions and it was first founded by people who had obscure old reels of film, like who were collectors and they wanted to share them with each other. And now it's like kind of a, I mean, it's been a slick event, you know, for the last like 10 years, but now it's in a new theater Mm-hmm. And how did it? How did it feel to you? Did it feel like mini TCM or what was the vibe?
0: Yeah, um, it kind of reminded me a bit of the Arthur Lyons one in the sense mm-hmm. of, you know, early at nine a.m., maybe twenty people. Yeah, yeah. And by the end of the day, the the theater was packed. Yeah. So yes, that's exactly it. Yep.
1: And it's got one film after the other, mm-hmm. and there's like a little rhythm and schedule to it. But everybody. Yeah who goes to those things again you were at it this year but they just all seem very just happy to be there
0: Mm -hmm. exactly i even talked to a guy for like 20 minutes just about old movies um and he was just sitting waiting for the uh the little elevator to bring him up in his wheelchair (laughs) yeah right That's like where do you meet
1: movie fans right like that's Mm -hmm. a it's a great place and because uh the, the film choices are not super well some of them are pretty obscure i mean they're pretty obscure but but yeah. and and some are uh you know uh, somebody must have liked them right <laughs> at exactly some point cuz you re- you really need to understand them in the cultural context that they're in and sometimes the rarity is the interesting thing about them but there's a whole whole history behind them but the Uh, Stuff that I've seen there was stuff I never would have thought about or even known anything about where it existed. And then if you go year after year, you start to be like, you know, you are one of the, I don't know, 500 people who are like, oh, here comes the next Charlie Chase movie. Yeah,
0: (laughs) right. I know. And there were so many random actors and actresses. I had no idea who they were. People were just clapping and cheering. It was great. Like they recognized them.
1: It's the one place where uh, it's like a comic-con, right? It's the one Mm -hmm. place where somebody might know some obscure back catalog hero and stuff. And they'll all be like, Oh, it's the first green lantern when he was a minor and had a lantern, (laughs) you know, or whatever. I don't know if that's actually a real, I don't know enough about superheroes. I just mean, I I think. (laughs) Might might
0: be be real. I don't (laughs)
1: know. But yeah, that's, that's, what's fun. And What's encouraging to me, and I think that when we first started uh, talking even at WonderCon, because WonderCon was pretty early this year. I think it was March. Was it? March? Yeah, it
0: was like lo- last week in a March.
1: And I had gone to a film festival in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, like about two weeks before, which was my first, uh, you know, in-person event uh, since this all began. And it was exciting to me to be back among people in person and enjoying the kinds of pop culture stuff that I enjoy and also helps widen my knowledge. And uh, I like I like other people's enthusiasm and, and finding out what they like,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, not just because I would like to see it, but also I, I get to learn as somebody who does marketing or whatever, what their approach to that fandom is and, Uh, what it means to them right it 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 helps engage me uh to explore further
0: exactly yeah and so from your time at warner brothers you know how has that kind of changed your approach to marketing and to uh, looking at obscure rare movies
1: that's a that's very
0: interesting
1: question and um it's a good way of phrasing it because Obviously, something like that does change you. I mean, it was 12 plus years of my life. So, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But when I came into it, it wasn't uh, the program was new. It was a little by accident. But uh, what worked for me and what I hooked to early was I was somebody who liked Going to events like I, I had been going to the film noir festival since they started up uh, in the late '90s, and I had seen how those guys, you know, Eddie Muller mm. um, uh, presented it, right? And he interpreted why these film noir films were not just fun, but like kind of important, right? Because they, at that point, they had fans, but it was more consigned to the corners of fandom Mm -hmm. and he's like no this is a subgenre that's worthy of appreciation worthy of a festival right and uh and i had always gone uh you know i'd watch old movies on tv with movie hosts you know i didn't have tcm but you know for like three or four months i had amc Mm -hmm. and would watch uh, pre-tcm you know there was the guy in front of a fireplace and like Ginger Rogers, right? Like that, they mm. kind of developed that. Or uh, when I lived outside of Chicago as a kid, they had. He's, he's still on Get TV, Sven but he was son of Sven then, and he came in at commercials and explained why these like crazy monster movies, like why it was fun to like them. Like he explained, especially to me as a kid, why it was okay to like bad movies, right? Because mm. they weren't bad, because they were fun, and. Um so when I got to Warner Brothers and Warner Archive had started up, most of the people who were handling the marketing were title driven. And they were very used to being like, okay, we've got this movie. Here's why you should see this movie. But what I saw, and with the budget that they had was, well, why don't we become like an Eddie Muller or a horror host right. or you know, the American cinema tech? Like we're the host and we have programming, and so stay tuned, right? And if you don't like this movie, you may like this other movie, but maybe you'll listen to us talk about this other movie, but you don't know. And early on with DVD collecting, not a lot of people did what at the time they called blind buys, right? It was like, you usually bought a film you were already a fan of, and that was uh, why you wanted it on physical media. But a lot of the films we were releasing weren't on, even on TCM. Like there there was really nowhere to see them. So we started to talk about why they were worth you paying, you know, 15 or more or less, depending on if there was a sale dollars on, right? Like, like, why, why do you want to, why, why does, is this worthy of your time? And so that's, uh, I took those elements from people like that uh, to be like, this is worthy of your time and ultimately money um, because it's something you haven't explored. And so with that attitude, right? And then now I, uh, maybe what was it, like three and a half years after I started, I started to go on the podcast. And so mm-hmm. that I committed myself to watch every movie we released.
0: That's awesome.
1: I came up into Warner Brothers as a temp working on the WB shop and Warner Archive was at that point exclusively being sold through it. And nobody who was uh, in charge of marketing really understood what it was beyond uh, the titles coming through and those titles they were not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. So as a temp, I was given very free reign to define how we were selling it to consumers, which was great. And there was a guy uh, who kind of became uh, my boss later. He started the, the day before me, uh, but he was a manager and he uh, caught on to my enthusiasm for the product. And as a technical, more technical, he had an engineering background. Hmm. Uh, he had an MBA and like a, a degree in engineering from I think Stanford or no, you got an MBA from Stanford, an engineering degree from University of Delaware. Oh, uh, but, okay. but he really got into the manufactured on demand system because at the time, right for us, and we were in the we were in the digital division, but we were dealing with physical um, objects, right? But hmm. ha- carrying no inventory is the advantage of uh, video on demand, right? when you don't have to put something in a store, you don't have to worry about returns. Right. And returns are the one of the things that have always uh, plagued, uh, it goes back to books, actually it goes back to magazines and newsstands was because um, like if you're a newspaper, you always wanted or a magazine, you always want fresh stuff on the magazine rack. And so they would accept unsold, Periodicals Uh, and uh, they'd accept them back, and then they would, you know, trash them and put Mm. the new stuff on, and that became part of the expense. And so, uh, booksellers uh, started to do that, right? Records, uh, and when movies came out, you know, uh, video stores that were selling product could return it, return unsold inventory. But uh, that is a huge hassle, and then what was happening in by like 2008, 2009 is that you would start to be competing with uh surplus inventory, which was marked down. Hmm. So if your disc was, you know, a new disc was like, you know, whatever, like $15, but a surplus disc wound up, you know, six, $7, right. Why, why would somebody buy the full price one? Well, right. You know, that, uh, What was left over or like even by the mid like 2015s you'd see surplus inventory in like a 7-eleven for like five bucks (laughs) yeah but you never see warner archive ones in there because there just wasn't surplus inventory so it's a it's a pretty it's a pretty advanced uh business concept that you know people understood the theory of manufactured on demand but they but in practice nobody especially at the studio level really wanted to do it, but because we were not part of the original home entertainment division, it became mm-hmm. uh, a growth area. And so when you know uh, a lot of movie studios, uh, you may have heard or seen in the news that they reorganized a lot. There was a reorganization yes. in 2015 where uh, Warner archive was uh, taken from uh, digital, and this is when we had a streaming channel too, and the digital division kept the streaming channel, but they moved us as employees to the traditional home video label. So uh, the good part about that is we had more access to their schedule and, and stuff that we could bring back back in print. Uh, but as physical sales went down, um in traditional retailers like target uh our sales were going up not as fast to replace them uh-huh. but it was became really the only now it is the only way that warner brothers releases discs at all because the discs that go into stores are part of this joint venture with universal so for collectors by the way you'll start to see and I know that they're coming through like uh, retail sets where they mix Universal and Warner Brothers uh, movies and TV shows together because they have the rights to all those they can pull that and get that uh, shelf placement so that's good news for consumers
0: yeah that's crazy
1: yeah it's what happens in the distribution business is very complex and when we did The Warner Archive podcast, part of that, you know, part of that experience was to kind of try to uh, let people who are interested, right? Not everybody needs to know how the sausage is made, Mm. Uh, but but to sort of show that, you know, it's not like on social media. And again, we would answer people on social media, which uh, the larger studio rarely did. But we answered it because we wanted people to understand that it wasn't just like you push a button and a movie comes out right? Like, I mean, nobody really thinks that, but when they they just, uh, they kind of think that there's, like, a copy of the movie, and it's sitting there, and then we just decide which ones of those copies came out, like, when I was working there, and it's all, you know, like, what are the existing masters? What's going to be remastered? What technology are you going to do it? How What level are you going to restore it, right? Because, like, when more traditional retail people people would release something like, hey, let's pick something from the background there, Wizard of Oz, which uh, is a perennial seller. Like any new format, there's always a Wizard of Oz uh, release coming out because, uh, number one, people like it, and number two, the technology that they used uh, was well-preserved, you know, the three-strip Technicolor process. And as computer technology has gotten better, uh, those every time they run it through the scanner you know you try not to run it through the scanners that much because they don't want to ruin it but you know you mm. once you re-register those three colors and pinpoint it now you're getting this incredible uh, focus and detail that was never that nobody had ever seen that and the last uh, big theatrical release for it was the 3d version of wizard of oz which you know, when you first hear about it, you're like, "Huh?" But yeah. then, when you go see it in IMAX, you're like, "Oh, crap!" Right? Like it, it they pulled stuff out of it that it's like you'd never seen it before. And I believe, you know, I don't have any. I haven't worked for them uh, or done anything. Like my last thing was like a, the, the the last Warner Archive podcast, which was April of 2021. So I have no insight, but. Uh, that's the kind of thing that, you know, if and when a 4K comes out, right? You know, cause more and more 4K is coming out of the Warner Brothers library because uh, for streaming, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the technology has come, you know, the costs have come down. Uh, you're gonna see more of those kinds of things come out and older movies, especially like black and white. I'm not up on 4K so I, I have actually no idea about it, any of the, I, Like. Fortune Wizard of Oz might be out or not. I have no. I just realized I was like talking. I have, no, I have no <laughs> idea. I'm just making stuff up. So yeah. don't, don't listen to me. I do <laughs> not know. I wasn't keeping track of it. But what I guess. So pretend I never said anything because I had no insight. But whenever a new technology comes out, sometimes you're like, can this be any better? Like, okay, do you need something that's like like Wizard of Oz, you know, like Wizard of Oz in 3D was, it's actually worked.
0: Um, that just blows my
1: mind. I can't imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, and it's, and I, I right. It, it is mind blowing because it is like a different movie, but it's not, but it is, but it's like the future, right? Like it's mm. weird. Um, but when we, like when when uh, 2K uh, releases were first happening, people were like, oh, no. Nope, Who's going to want to see hd black and white that was mm-hmm. sort of like why would you want to see black and white but then when you started to see the scans coming back you're like oh this looks great right like like the 2k is amazing and so again when 4k first came out it was all action movies but as 4k right. black and white movies start to come out you know what's what's that going to be like now me right as somebody who's worked in home video you think I'd have the latest 4K? I I don't. I don't have a 4K player. Oh really? Uh, nope. And that's not. I'm not saying that to be proud. It's just like I just uh, I didn't work on 4Ks. You know, like mm. like there was no reason for me to have it. I've seen 4. I like I love 4K in the theater. Mm. It's hard. And uh, when 4K was coming out, I went into the Warner Brothers labs and saw all these tests. And what was interesting with the early technology was that um, the HDR, the color, was more dramatic in AD testing. Like, you could really tell the difference. Like, these richer, deeper blacks were coming out. Uh, 4K was just like, oh, there's more bark on the tree. I mean, it was nice, but I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to spend thousands of dollars to upgrade to see bark better, right? Like like that was literally my thought. But that was 2013, 2013, You know, now when I if I buy another TV, you know, when this one dies, I'll probably get a 4K and then I'll be like, all right, I'm gonna 4K player, right? Because it's backwards compatible. I'd like why wouldn't I? You know? Uh but that's the kind of consumer I am. Hmm. Uh, and I do have, although they're probably none right behind me but I do have 4k discs I'll be like oh we we'll pop it in but it's um but where I'm noticing it now in quality more is like um movie theaters but because not most movie theaters don't have 4k
0: right they don't have the capability
1: no so it's you know so it's like uh is it is it necessary right and uh, I think that, you know, just like, just like Blu-ray, right? Blu-ray mm-hmm. never really mainstreamed, but now through streaming, most people see 2K, I think they can tell the difference, right? Between, like my girlfriend when she, uh, I paid for uh, an EST, you know, electronic selfie, which is just basically VOD, but for a television, right? And you know, it's like you pay two bucks and you can, It's not a rent, it's not a rental. Uh, but I paid two bucks instead of three bucks and it was SD. And she's watching it. And she goes, This episode looks a lot worse than the other ones. <laughs> and I go, uh, that's because I would pay the extra dollar. But <laughs> but like that's how some and, and you know, she works in film, right? You know, like like she recognized it, but she didn't recognize right. it. You
0: know, you know, it's like right. It's like how high fi. Mm. Yeah, well, and I've heard too you know the human eye can't even see anything above 4K anyway. Yeah. So it's, it's like
1: I, I mean it turns out we kind of can in some way right like like you can but it's it's a I'm trying to figure out where the the it's like a uh, there's a limit right? Mm-hmm. And it's like the uh, difference between you know 320 by 240 mm-hmm. you know which it was like uh, or like um which would be like interlaced sd and regular sd right people are like oh blu-rays look better like a properly you know non-interlaced uh i'm sorry uh, blu-ray dvd just better than a vhs right Mm -hmm. i mean a really well-made vhs and a crappy dvd would kind of look alike right but then you know, DVDs, they started to release widescreen versions and people had widescreen TVs. Okay, now it's clearly better. But then, you know, you make the leap to HD mm-hmm. and you, you know, you can see it, right? But it's like, but it still takes, time. I mean, it just takes time. But I, that was a really wide and boring digression into uh, technology and what you perceive and I think maybe you're on my side, really, because it, it more becomes to me about what is available rather than how good it looks. Right. I mean, I want it to look the best it can because I can tell. But the difference between not seeing it all and seeing it is bigger to me. Like, I'd rather see it crappy than not see it
0: yeah well and that kind of reminds me when when you guys did the warner archive podcast you talk all the time and say you know this is the best master we had we didn't have the negative or the positive right like you had to use what you had and some people complain but you got to do what you got to do right yeah and and
1: technology changes right like um one of the interesting things that's happened in the last uh about five years It's pretty regularly used now. Uh, If the source, you know, like uh, because we we talked about this on the Archive Guys episode I just posted. Uh, If the original source is better than SD, you know, like like things are recorded on a uh, videotape, right? Like like from the six, like the eighties, you know, on Mm -hmm. like a one inch or or in the seventies two inch tape. That's better than. What a uh, that has more information than a DVD can handle. It's going to look better on a Blu-ray or in an HD. But also, we now have interpolation. So, like the software goes in and does a much better job of guessing what information is missing, right? Mm. Like, and they use it frequently. It's being used very. Very frequently, sometimes it'd probably be better if they went back and sourced it. But but uh, you know it's used on many movie networks uh, that play classic films mm-hmm. uh, all the time. Uh, it's used it's used a lot of places. It's used on streaming services because they, uh, streaming services themselves you know tell uh, producers or owners of content that they want the content. Uh, given to them at a specific resolution. And, you know, a lot of TV shows, when they go out in the field or they finish them, current ones, right, they're they're finished at 2K. But then they up-res them to 4K to delivery to unnamed services multiple that
0: uh, require 4K delivery. You know, you know, most people don't notice, right? Right. The untrained eye won't see it at all. Nah. Yeah. I mean, yeah.
1: You know, is it future proof? Mm. But I uh, it's just the reality of production. But that stuff is uh, really in the weeds, and we would get into that in in our podcast, and I don't mean to bore everybody in your <laughs> podcast. I can talk about much more fun things like
0: discard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I like discard. I'm a graphic designer, so Yeah, see Louis. <laughs> <That's> like- <laughs> but-
1: Actually, that's a that's actually what I was first hired for at Warner Brothers. was as a designer, right? I, the marketing was kind of secondary, but it was because um, at the WB shop they needed little ad units and thumbnails and emails and all that. And so, and I also write copies. so I started, you know, writing the copy. And then I'm like, oh, let me go. You know, they gave me the passwords to the photo archive. So now I'm going in and pulling that stuff, right? And then once I see it, I'm like, at the time I was like, why aren't we putting the original poster art on the DVDs? Because the first year or so, we had this uh, very different line look. And- The
0: square one, right?
1: Yep. And that's what it looked like when I got there. And I was like, I don't want to actually put these
0: on the marketing material
1: just because they were not um i mean they looked fine when you got them you know but they weren't uh because they had a line look they all looked the same right mm. so if you put them in an email they and then it was just uh there was just like a little photo in right there. so i was like well why don't i just show the photo right like that's the selling point point. and then it's like well wouldn't it be easier as a designer right if you just put the original poster and you kind of I mean sometimes you got to do extra work but you kind of crop the edges because it's not quite the same uh ratio as a movie poster and I convinced them you know I got some help with that because I didn't really know I didn't really (laughs) understand how a big company worked but uh we convinced them to to make that very positive change and uh so you know since 2010 that's how all the Uh, disc for release and we went back and changed i think there are still like 50 discs that have the original uh, line art we we went we had a the guy who uh, designs the covers went back and uh, changed them but that was a huge deal because the original posters are uh, i mean not everyone is great right obviously Mm. but it gives you a context of how the film was marketed
0: at the time right well and so many you know like you were mentioning wizard of oz they change it all the time so it always fits in different typography that always drives me crazy it's different than the movie (laughs) and you know like when you see um when you look at like sort of the
1: history of uh the movie posters you'll classically see that um the opening credits have a different font than what was on the poster Uh and like the Belgian poster will have one title treatment and you know, the English poster will have one and the U S one will, or the re-release will, you know, you, you can really drill down, but part of the fun sometimes, especially when there wasn't a great poster was, you know, you'd find a different international poster or a variant or a, you know, like like a lobby card that just yeah. looked better. Uh, I did the artwork. Like, I prepared the artwork for... Mm, I mean, God, my stuff was still appearing uh, to the end of last year. But, like, out of all the Blu-rays, uh, probably 90% of the, um, the menus are my art. And you know, sometimes I was like they had some art elements in there where I, I just called the colored forms and I just you know put the bar in and like this but but a lot of them where I go find lobby cards right because it was horizontal art instead mm-hmm. of vertical article art. right and so let's see how the designers at the time handled a horizontal presentation and sometimes it was great and other times you know it's like if you do graphic design I'm like cut out that face move it this way yeah (laughs) right you know some of them were hard uh but a lot of them were you know easy it was just like uh how do you how do you crop you know um i call there are certain movies that have such great original poster key art i call them god's gifts to uh creative directors uh because they (laughs) they sell the movies right Right, you are judging the book by the cover because at least you have a cool cover.
0: Exactly, yes.
1: I, I always put uh, green slime into that category.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: that, that movie is, well, it's a fantastically, it is the best 1968 American, Italian, Japanese co-production written by a co-creator of Batman and directed by the guy who did Battle Royale there ever was
0: because <laughs> there's like three of those, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: there's just the one and it has amazing art. It, it is such a unique and uniquely bizarre film that it is worth seeing like it's not just mystery science three thousand fun it is it, it's it's a it's a cinema experience that is uh. Uh, it is a tour de force of something. I don't know. But it, but it also has this like incredible uh, artwork of like a woman in a bikini in space fighting a one-eyed alien outside a space station. That's <laughs> without any visuals, it's worth looking at. But that's one such example where I was like, yes, we're like, we first did the DVD. I was so excited. I put the art everywhere. And when the Blu-ray came out, I go, I can use this again. <laughs> right like what a gift
0: so speaking of those was there one you particularly really liked like any favorite release you ever did so uh, i
1: was there for 3500 releases on dvd and <laughs> blu-ray and um you know uh which which children would i rescue from the fire and which one would i send uh, to death at the at the hands of Nazis uh, is that what you're asking? <laughs> yeah, uh, I basically, mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Green Green Slime is definitely was a fun release. I didn't have you know like like there were no mysteries to it or anything. Uh, I don't think we even had a commentary on it, but I I, I did a lot of commentaries. I really enjoyed. Uh, doing those and producing them and putting them together. And some of them, we would have people come in studio. And it was always, that was a lot of fun for me. Um, I did, um, I think it was Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. I did the commentary in 2010 and in 2020. So there, both commentaries are by me. One is way more comedic, the 2010 one. Mm. Uh, it, it was more like Mystery Science Theater. And then the 2021 was with Amanda Ray's, and you know she's a TV movie scholar. And so uh, she really gets into a lot of the details. She's fantastic and she's done so many commentaries, uh, but she's a real expert. So it's like, that's what's fun about the format is, uh, you know, uh, when you can get good extras in, uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's extra fun. But we didn't do, we put our money more into the mastering since we own the rights. Right, right. So you know, a company like uh, Criterion or uh, Shop Factory, you know, they mo- uh, mostly license. I mean, they own a bunch of rights too, but their uh, the great value that they bring to it is their uh, you know context mm-hmm. and uh, helping others. You know, it's like extra. I mean, it's it's extras are as a disc owner, they're they're great fun and uh, they're always worthwhile and appreciated um you know i wish we could have had more but we also uh probably would have had less releases like whenever i did a commentary uh, i would have been able to do more commentaries but like the when we knew that when it was going and when the commentary was due to put on the disc was like this narrow window and i would have to go Uh, not only record the commentary, edit the commentary, I'd have to make a transcript of the commentary, send it off to legal. Legal would make edits because, you know, apparently there are things that did not happen. Uh, And then, you know, edit it again, right? And then output it, which took me so long to say, but imagine how long that actually would be to do, you know, but but you you get better at it, right? You learn what kind of cannot say um you know like this like we've we've been recording like 23 hours of this right and we're just going to edit this down to five minutes because most of what i say is it's not allowed
0: (laughs) in the court of law that makes sense (laughs) well
1: yeah i I have a question for you sure yeah are you a student of filmmaking like like what are you studying
0: Mm -hmm. um so I went to college for graphic design. That's what my associate's degree is in. Um, originally, it was a film and television degree, but I found more fun in the design aspect. And, you know, both my parents, they're art teachers and growing up drawing and all of that. So I get I lean more into that. But ever since I was a little kid, I've loved movies. You know, I watch them all the time. I mean, you know, behind me here actually that direction i got tons of them you know and uh so my formal training has been just talking about it online i don't have any real training in it at all
1: <laughs> no, 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 no the the reason why i mentioned that is uh in high school i studied graphic design like you know like how some people would take auto shop uh-huh, i uh-huh. i learned like uh, from a guy who owned a print shop and stuff, and I learned how to run the press and do the design, and and I I loved it, right? I and because uh, I like making my own T-shirts, and I yeah. had a band, and like like that was a way that I could readily communicate. Like I I used it to communicate what I liked, right? And then, um, but I uh, got a degree in film studies and filmmaking, which I also liked because I saw that as an extension uh, of communications. Mm. But uh, what happened when I moved out to LA, I worked on a lot of film crews, but uh, they did not offer, um, working on low budget horror movies does not offer you things that you may need like uh, rent.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's not consistent, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, or health insurance. And so I, I started to get jobs in Design, but I and I work design, uh, you know, like like physical things. Like I did, a, and I authored a book and I designed it. Mm-hmm. And uh, but at the same time, I was doing writing, film writing, and um, filmmaking, right? Like and and on the web. And so, uh, but that's how I got my opportunity for Warner Brothers. So it's a kind of, it's very interesting because it's similar because you would too would see that uh, design. Is actually just part of visual communications, which is film and filmmaking. So it's it's not as far apart as one would think.
0: Yeah. Well, and and you mentioned high school too. Uh, I took a couple film classes in high school, but you know uh, they were fun and all. I had a great time, but nothing compared to what I've learned from graphic design and from even YouTube in general. You know, I've I've learned a lot more oh, yeah. from that. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs>
1: YouTube is a great resource. And, you know, when uh, I was at school and uh, college, uh, the equipment for filmmaking was not as available as it is today, you mm-hmm. know, and I got access to machines. And uh, and at college too, I had access to great computers. And although I was not following a graphic design curriculum, uh, I ran like the humor newspaper you know like i i was still doing graphic design at school mm. but i wasn't studying it so you know the the two it was it's always been like a little bit of a race yeah uh but but again it's not uh i was just excited when you when you said that because it is uh it's not as uncommon as you think but it is it it's pretty it's pretty rare
2: mm-hmm.
1: or but it's I guess like professionally I've weaved sort of back and forth and you can see why right because once you know about fonts yeah (laughs) that qualifies you look somebody made a movie about Helvetica font I've seen that almost as interesting as Helvetica font yes (laughs) is that a good review of that film Did I just do it? Almost as interesting.
0: Almost. I actually kind of, I actually kind of liked it. I'm a little bit of a nerd with the No, I (laughs) I
1: loved it. After seeing that film, by the way, you will see this in Warner archive releases. There would be uh, people from the, when I was doing the marketing, when I'd sort of moved over, uh, people from design would come in and start like fighting about fonts. And so, (laughs) and I would just like roll my eyes and, More than once, I go boom. I've decided everything is going to be Helvetica. Everybody (laughs) looked at me like this, and I go, "Name another, name another font that has a documentary."
0: Exactly. And I go, maybe Comic Sans, but
1: (laughs) I would watch the Comic Sans uh, movie. That is actually a good one. Yeah, that or Comic Sans, which. Uh, Harrison made the documentary to that. Harrison, that's your project. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the Comic Sans movie. I'd see it. Not, and then the pull quote could be not funny.
0: Yeah. <laughs> or it's in a a different font that says like worst font and movie ever or something yeah. like that. <laughs> Hobo font. Yeah,
1: <laughs> that's my favorite uh, title of a font. It's it's when I see, um, there was a restaurant in LA. That was next to uh, the Arc Light, which was what was the name of the restaurant? It was like uh, Hello or something, but it was in Hobo font. And I go, did the designer just go, oh, that's uh, Hobo font because the the name of the restaurant is close to it, and then they just showed it to him. People were like, great, like it was like free associated. That was mine. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a real huge font nerd, but I did, I did. I did put my fist down and say, "This is Helvetica." Oh, and then I yelled at people and I said, "Nobody argues about Helvetica." <laughs> like, that's like a good designer joke, right? It is a good because you can't you can't argue with Helvetica.
0: Nope.
1: <laughs> like what? What could you say that's bad about? It's it's predictable.
0: It's been used a lot, right? Right, but then you can make the argument. Well, that's probably why it's good then, because everyone uses it. See, you know the trap. I was like,
1: I was like waiting for someone to challenge me. I was like, I, I, I can't lose this. Yeah, so uh, that's why I'm not working there anymore. It's really it was overhauled at a cut.
0: Right. Uh, well, speaking of, I actually have not about typography, but about uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got this book. Here. No, uh, I actually have a couple. Warner Archives. I want to ask your questions about. Okay, go. Right. Yeah, sure. let me go. Yeah. Let me go grab them real quick. Okay. Okay, I have returned. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> so, uh, I'll start off with this one. Okay. This is one of my favorite ones. You guys did the Tex Avery great. one.
1: Yeah. Right. I go ahead. I prefer you. We have a Warner Archive podcast episode with Jerry Beck on that release, which is like an hour of Jerry and George talking about uh, everything on that.
0: Yes. no, that was one of my favorite episodes you guys ever did. It's one of our most popular ones. I, I looked at the numbers. All right. <laughs> it
1: really is. And it's a great, and that's, I don't recommend too many like solo episodes, but that one is great. The Tex Avery releases are important. That's a good way to put it because mm. Um, and we we talk about this on the podcast. This is one of these funny instances where it's like the French were very into Tex Avery and Americans have not really gotten into understanding the uh, why, right? Like what, what was interesting about Tex Avery? Why was he important? Why are the French celebrating him? Is that like Jerry Lewis? You know, mm-hmm. and it's not. Uh, he is a pioneer. And while um, his characters and creations are not uh, Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse, right? Like, like his IP is not as, it's identifiable, but it, it's not as uh, identifiable in the modern market.
0: Definitely, yeah. Um, it,
1: it, his DNA is in uh, all animation. Uh, that is produced after it right Uh, and uh, his influence is widely recognizable especially like in um, you know like anything on like Adult Swim you Mm -hmm. know like he he is uh, a master of um, chaotic energy yes (laughs) yeah so uh, collections like that are great because they are uh, an educational opportunity you know like we I think we went to comic-con with that one or we went to some conventions with it you know we did special podcasts on it uh that's where i felt like our commercial mission and what i see is our sort of cultural mission uh align because uh it's it's freaking entertaining and uh and it's like an interesting uh cultural artifact that's educational you know like if you if you watch it and you don't really know where it's coming from, and you seek information on it, you're rewarded, or vice versa. If you're mm. like, "Oh, this is great. Oh, okay, is this like, am I watching like Citizen Kane? You know, like like as a kid, like when kids, like high school kids are forced to watch Citizen Kane and they don't understand why it's a good movie."
0: Yeah, it took me a couple couple watches. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> like you're told it's good, right?
1: You oh, know, read this; it's good for you, you know. Tex Avery is not. It's not Charles Dickens. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I, I really got into him after that. I never really watched any of his shorts. See, but, it worked. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> and kind of in a similar tone, I also really like this one you did. The Porky, Porky Pig, Pig one. And similar reasons. You know, I love the the cartoons and whatnot, but I also love the commentary on it as well. I thought yeah. it gave some great insights into the shorts. and. Uh,
1: the Porky Pig one, which is DVD, was kind of a pilot for stuff like Tex Avery, right? Mm-hmm. Because while, uh, you know, some of it was new, a lot of it was had been on other collections. Mm-hmm. And so it was sort of a meta collection, right? Put together to see if there was an audience uh, for a, a character like that. Like, like it's like all Porky. and obviously it worked uh it got to you it got to other people cuz it uh it was an interesting mixture of um recontextualizing and reputing together some older catalog material in one place with one theme and mixing it with some new stuff
0: mm-hmm. so yeah
1: it's the catalog at work
0: yeah do you have a favorite short on it at all
1: so i was I am not an animation historian by <laughs> uh, trade, so but I love uh, George and Jerry's knowledge on these things. So it's fun uh, to sometimes I like to kind of blind watch and see what I think before I hear about you know. Because I, mm. I but I loved the very early ones because those are rarely played right that that's sort of the cynicon of uh termite terrace you know like like because it's it's not quite right yet Mm -hmm. you know like when you watch it you're like oh yeah i see
0: porky yeah you could see him developing over time
1: yeah and that's what was great about it so the early ones you know he's like a minor character uh you know, and again, I'm not answering you about a specific episode. <laughs> I probably okay. talked okay. about it on our podcast. But the first, like watching, like the first three to four, is what I took with me because th- that was unique and fun. And yeah, and there was a lot of commentary and, uh, uh yeah. No, that was a, those were great releases. You, mm-hmm. you, you, you can taste.
0: Yeah, thank you.
1: These are actually excellent releases because I don't know what you're what you're gonna pop up. So I'm like. All right. Where's yeah. the one I don't know?
0: Yeah, this is the last one. All right. I also have a couple more, but we'll just do. Oh, three. okay. There's too many. <laughs> I know. But this one, a uh, jazz singer. Hmm. And so. Well, yeah. Good.
1: That one was not initially ours. I think that that is what, um, it was in, uh, a book. Mm-hmm. And when did that? I think that one came out last year. Let me check. Uh, Twenty nineteen. Oh crap! Um, I don't know if I, I think I have that one, but we um, so part of what we did and first did for DVD, which people thought was crazy, and then until it made a lot of money, <laughs> um, was brought stuff back in print. And the way we did it at first is we saw, well, what's selling on Amazon. Right? For, oh, right? You know, like out of print. And then and we're like, Oh, the average copy is selling for a hundred bucks. Well, how much would it cost us? You know, like cost us, this was something that the, uh, the guy who first ran the program really pioneered. Um, how much would it cost to uh, re-ingest the DVD and, you know, modify some artwork and put it back. Right. And it's usually not a lot, right? Like, like, mm. like uh, what was the break even? And uh, we could bring it into print for a little less because there was less money, right? The price would be down a little, but we were and we were competing with what had already been liquidated. So especially in the beginning, it was like, well, what is totally sold out, right? What's selling for hundred bucks, not what's selling for six, right? And eventually, everything just leaves the market, and so we would have uh, what we would basically just called re-releases come back in the system. And we did the same thing with Blu-rays. And that one was, I believe, uh, a box set. And I think I have the original box set. Or it was like a book. Um, it's uh, there are just so many, I might be screwing this up. <laughs> but, but with that, to- Barnes & Noble would carry these like booklets and there would be like, a, you know, like information with the disc, that was like kind of a feature. And they were like, you know, like gifts or for collectors, um, mm-hmm. but there weren't as many of those printed. And that was the only way that they came out, so releasing them through Warner Archive uh, allowed that uh, disc to uh, be in circulation uh, you know and you didn't have to pay a hundred dollars for uh, the earlier version, right, yeah, but the jazz singer itself uh, that disc uh, came with lots of features, yeah, uh, and because the history the early history of sound is convoluted that's probably the best way to put it and uh you know you'll see stuff like in wikipedia or even people who should know better that are like well the first sound film the jazz singer dot 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 and you know i'm the nerd who's like that is not the first sound feature right i mean the first sound feature that I learned about in film school is the jazz singer is the correct answer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they get into, I believe on that disc, like the history of Vitaphone uh, and the technology and how actually one of the Warner brothers uh, died of like a heart attack from the stress of, of bringing Vitaphone to market. And the reason why, the Warner Brothers lot is in Burbank it's because they bought the Vitaphone company and they had that property on the other side of the hill in Burbank. Uh, they, they went all in on sound when the other studios hadn't and they developed a system that had a record and the record was synchronized to the picture. And uh, that was the first successful sound technology. Other technologies, uh, competing technologies kind of came in and replaced that but Warner Brothers proved it and The Jazz Singer was the first hit uh, right. with it. And uh, Al Jolson was a popular entertainer at the time. How popular he was is kind of lost on a lot of modern audiences. You know, films of old media understand, uh, but it's it's, uh, it's hard to quantify uh, his cultural presence and it went up and then down right
0: yeah like, severely down
1: yeah and i uh, you know into you know like by the way after world war ii he was considered dick class a and old-fashioned and so um you know people who most people who are alive today you know old p older people people who are over god 80 right you have to be if you're like 80 years old your pop culture knowledge came about when Al Jolson was on his way down. There are very few people alive today who were alive when he was uh, considered cool.
0: Right, yeah.
1: So it's, uh, it's very interesting. I and mean, his legacy is uh, kind of fascinating. In fact, there was an MGM movie about him from like 1951 or two that we had on, on DVD, which tries to, it's called The Al Jolson Story.
0: yeah i've been it's, wanting to buy that one it's
1: what's interesting is like you know biopics of popular culture figures are, it's a mainstay right you know of we have them all the time in fact tiff uh toronto right now i think it was last night they showed the weird al yankovic <laughs> biopic weird with yeah. daniel Radcliffe from you know harry potter which is uh an exaggerated tale of his rise to fame. But that's what the Al Jolson story is, right? That's like an early version of that tale. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's, but again, it's like uh, harder for a modern audience to, like, like that, like Al Jolson is obscure. People reckoning with Al Jolson in the early 50s is even more obscure because right. it's now 70 years after that so yeah i was like that's a, that's a those are the great um a lot of times pop culture and pop culture study becomes like uh, if you if you stare too close it's like staring into the infinity mirror
0: yes <laughs> no i and i it, feel that
1: <laughs> and where where do you stop but uh but that's part of like life and like retro you know like people make movies about that like like um woody allen's last good movie that i liked was at midnight in paris Mm. where it's like owen wilson goes back to what he thinks is the perfect paris and meets a woman and falls in love with her but she wants to time travel to what she thinks is the best part of paris right because like it actually deals with nostalgia very well in context because it's like where does it stop not on this video shelf
0: no (laughs) no
1: freaking groundhog day here
0: Never ending, right? <laughs> That's me catching myself. Stop staring into the mirror, Patterson. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of movies, I know recently you, uh, you guys released a movie. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Well, by you guys, that is me.
1: Right, Is you. but
0: <laughs> Yeah, I'm not, I am no longer
1: with Warner Brothers, although I talk about them and I still say we, but I... Uh, Warner Brothers uh, parted ways with me uh, during the pandemic in uh, one of their many uh, restructurings. Uh, but in in my off time since then, uh, I was like, oh, you know, I could go get another job or, and this sounds like a really good idea, I could uh, produce and co-write a feature film. And uh, yes, that's what I did. I worked with a friend of mine. Uh, he had actually started the film and d- done some initial photography and I had watched it and I was like, oh, you know, it would be a great use of my time and money is, is uh, to finish this. And in the last year, we have been taking the film out uh, to film festivals and we started, uh, we did one in New York last fall, but, you know, it had gotten like with the, Delta uh, surge, it, it's like we didn't wind up going and it wound up going in a smaller theater, but we finally got to see our own movie in a movie theater in February in Wisconsin. And we've been in about four or five festivals total. We have more coming up. And then we are going to be releasing it on disc and uh, digital, uh, hopefully in the next, you know, maybe by Christmas, maybe after that. I don't, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say, but it's been really an adventure and uh it's freaking freaking hard uh (laughs) you know i empathize with filmmakers uh it it, and uh you'll be hearing me talk about that more when it becomes
0: available well we could talk for hours matt but i know you got to go now yeah thank, thank you so much for coming on today i really appreciate that Harrison,
1: any time that uh, anybody like yourself allows me to monologue unfettered without rolling their eyes, I will be more than happy to uh, continue talking until uh, something forces me away from the microphone.
0: Yep. <laughs> and uh, uh, where can people find you on social media? and uh, all yes. That?
1: Please uh, check us out, our, our show uh, at uh, archiveguys.com. And we have a bunch of social handles that have to do with Archive Guys. I am on social at MR, Mr. MR, Matt Patterson. And that's uh, in various formats. And Lunamancer is the movie that we're promoting, which is at lunamancer.com. Uh, if it comes to a place near you, uh, check it out. It's urban, gritty, sci-fi fantasy. But it takes place in, like, upstate New York in, like, kind of a forgotten industrial corner. And it's... Uh, alienated people fighting moon gods with crowbars (laughs) 71 minutes (laughs) just qualifies
0: oh that sounds fun i'll make you see it soon all right sounds good all right well and i put all the links in the description here guys so make sure to follow him and uh yeah thanks again thank you so much harrison And, and good luck and good luck with the design Yes.
1: Make this like a really good, like, you know, little, uh, uh still for, like this, like subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> that's for you.
0: Subscribe here. All right. Cool.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I love I'll that. Let's do some more. There you go. <laughs> you have to open your mouth and look surprised. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's your...
0: <laughs> That's it right there, right? All right. Talk to you later. Right. Talk to you later bye